Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. And looking at a parable that I believe will be familiar to most, if not all of us. And uh, I have never, I don't think I've ever really taught or preached on this text before. It's just one of those sort of well-known ones. You, you think you get around to it eventually. And I don't, I don't think I have. So um, Luke 16, we want to read verses 19 to 31. And if you will, stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. Luke writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in his flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in life, like manner, bad things. And now he's comforted here. You are in anguish. Besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither would they be convinced of someone should rise from the dead. Let's go look at prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy, and we ask as we open your word, you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth and hands and our feet. We transform the power of the gospel. What a sobering text this is. Um, and may you work in our hearts this evening. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Even for a Southern Baptist minister, I, I think you'd be surprised how often. I and all my um, uh, other pastoral friends in the SBC and, and here and elsewhere, how, how often we get questions about the supernatural, angels, demons, heaven, hell, stuff like that. I think you, you would be surprised. You would think you're going to go to a charismatic preacher because they've seen things. But really, I think you, you'd be surprised how often we Baptists get questions on these. And one of the questions I do get quite often has to deal with near-death experiences. Preacher? You believe in near-death experiences and so on and so forth because someone was watching Oprah or someone saw the heading of a magazine article or even perhaps read a book on it. Well, let me just say briefly, I, I, I do see a consistent unexplained phenomena. I'm not a scientist. I, I've not studied it for, for myself. Um, but it is, it is fascinating, isn't it, that you, you hear these stories where People who may have flatlined and had some experience, they're able to describe things in detail they should not be able to describe. Who was in another room or what was said uh, when they supposedly were, were flatlining. I can't experience any of that, but, but, or, or I, I can't explain any, any of that necessarily. But, 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 but what's fascinating is, is that the Bible has examples of this. 
Um, but when you really think about it, most of the resuscitations in the Bible, uh, the focus is rarely on the patient itself. Think about it. If, if you were there four days after the death of Lazarus and Jesus removes the stone and Lazarus comes walking out, wouldn't you think the Apostle John would assume the reader wants to know what Lazarus saw? Or if you were a Jairus and your daughter is raised, if, if you were the widow in the time of Elijah, right, you, you would think that, that what, what the reader wants to know is their experience on the other side. But, but outside of this text and outside of maybe, depending on your interpretation of the witch of, of Endor, we don't have any of this. Rather, the Bible often wants us to focus on the Savior more than on the ones that were saved. But this text is unique because we do meet a patient who has experienced this. And more than that, we meet two such patients who've experienced the afterlife. One is a nameless rich man. The other is a poor man named Lazarus. Let's begin in uh, focus on verses 19 to 21, where, where, where we see the life, right? They're, they're living in this life, and then we see the afterlife. And like any good story, this parable begins by introducing us to the characters. The first person we meet there is the rich man. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously. There's a word that we should, we should use more often. Sumptuously uh, every day. Now, right away, we, we know everything we need to know about this, this rich man. Now, remember, you're, you're writing in the context of the first century Judaism, particularly in the likely religious context of the Pharisees and, and, and what, what they would have thought about the rich man would have meant that, that his wealth is a sign of his divine favor. Uh, and and so, so they hear this rich man and they think, this must be the good guy. And notice how, how he is described here. First of all, he is defined by his fashion, you know, one of those people. He is clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple is the, is, is, is the colors of wealth. Now, we don't really have that today because, well, frankly, we're all rich. If you live in the United States, there's a high percentage chance you're rich. By worldly standards, you're, you're, you're quite rich. And so we, don't, we have all kinds of colors, right? Even here today, we're in a variety of colors and don't think much about it. It's different back then because of the source of where purple would, would come from. But we do think in these terms at time. Whenever I was a kid, there was a clothing brand that my family associated with, with wealth. Do you remember Bugle Boy? You want to remember Bugle Boy? We, we weren't like dirt poor growing up, but we weren't. We're barely middle class, if that. We, 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 we got back the best we could. And I remember my mom and dad saying, well, let me tell you about these kids, right? They wear Bugle Boy a lot, right? You ever, maybe it's not Bugle Boy to, 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 for, for your experience. Maybe it was something else. Whenever I was in middle school and high school, the wealthy kids, or at least as we perceived to be the wealthy kids in Owen County, uh, they wore Abercrombie and Fitch. The only Abercrombie and Fitch I could afford is if I went to the Christian bookstore and paid overpriced for a cheap shirt that said a breadcrumb and fish. That was the bit closest I could get. I remember, I, remember I, I would go to Structure, uh, which is now Express, so why bother going there now? It used to be called Structure, and there was American Eagle and Abercrombie and Fitch, and, and now there's the Era Postale. It sounds heretical. And, and, right, and, and you go to the mall, all right? And first of all, you don't buy clothes at the mall. You can't afford it. But if you do buy clothes in the mall, you go to the clearance section because we weren't one of those people. Right? So we do this today. If you see someone with a, oh, it was Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein, all this sort of stuff. The fanciest I got, this is no lie, fanciest I ever got was I had aftershave cologne that was Eddie Bauer. 
and my wife loved it. And I've not worn aftershave or cologne in years. If I were married, who, who else am I going to impress, right? Uh, them, them days are over with. But nevertheless, uh, in fact, this day when I think of Elder Beerman that was here in Frankfurt, I think, yeah, I love Eddie Bauer. No, wait, that's Elder Beerman? I don't even know. Anyways, so, so Bugle Boy, Abercrombie Fitch, whatever it, it might be. But regardless, this man wore expensive clothes. He didn't shop in the clearance section. And this was the sort of clothes that only rich people could wear and only the rich people would wear. I'm willing to bet if, if you are being tortured by your enemy and they make you watch the Grammys or the Oscars or one of those shows where, where, where the uh, uh, fancy people love on themselves, right? you know what I'm talking about? And they have the red carpet, right? And there's the snap, snap, who you wearing, snap, snap, which you should never say that sentence in your life, who you wearing. Please don't. Please don't. And, and, right, and, and they're doing all this sort of stuff. And you look at some of that fashion. Maybe it's just me and I think, you'd have to be rich and famous to wear something that terrible. There's something about that, isn't there? Right? Simple folk, we look normal. Rich celebrities, what, what happens there, right? Just stop with it. Ain't nothing wrong with a pair of blue jeans and a t-shirt. If it worked for Jesus, it should work for you. That's all, all I'm, I'm trying to say. Well, this man's defined not just by fashion, but also by food. He feasted sumptuously every day. Of course, this is about more than just food. But remember, you're, you're in a time where food is more scarce than it is today. Think about it. There are droughts and famines all over the world, and you and I don't even notice. In fact, as the worst it gets for you and me is when Wendy's has a, has a, a note or wherever has a note at their drive-thru that says, due to tomato shortage caused by tornado, hurricanes, whatever, if you want a tomato, we'll get it to you. Otherwise, you ain't getting no tomato. Written just like that, no doubt, right? That's as bad as it gets for us, tomatoes. But in this time, you didn't have access to so much food. So when you see someone feasting and, and gathering the, the, the elect celebrities and, and the important people, right, and the beautiful people, it, it, it comes off in, in a terrible, terrible way. There's a great scene that illustrates this in The Return of the King that Peter Jackson did. It is when the, the, the steward of Gondor, he wants to be the king, steward of Gondor, there's a scene where he sends his son to a, basically a suicide mission. Right? And, and we've got to go back and get this citadel. We've got to get back and get this city. While he is there feasting on food while his people are suffering. Right? And that's the image that, that, that you have going on here. He feasted sumptuously. This describes a luxurious lifestyle enjoyed by very few. He wasn't just rich. He was filthy rich and he lived luxuriously. He enjoyed the attention, the power, and the wealth and all that it, 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 it afforded him. Now, to be clear... There is nothing wrong with any of this. Now, we can talk about excess and all that, but, but just in general, there is nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's plenty of examples in the Bible. Abraham, Joseph, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea, Priscilla, Aquila, Philemon, among others, they were all wealthy. The problem isn't the amount of wealth we possess, but whether or not it owns us. And you can be owned by wealth in First class or last class of an airplane? Greed, envy, covetousness are not exclusive to the rich. You can be rich and unrighteous. You can be rich and righteous. You can be poor and unrighteous. You can be poor and righteous. 
Even a cursory reading of the Bible, Old and New Testament, you'll find examples of both. Plenty of wealthy people who are unrighteous. Plenty of wealthy people who are righteous. Plenty of poor people who are righteous. Plenty of poor people who are unrighteous. And that applies to the middle class as well. One's righteousness is not determined by their bank account, but by their heart and their obedience to God. Well, that's the rich man. He's nameless in the narrative, as all the characters in Jesus' parables are. But we meet this guy here, the poor man, quite a contrast. This is a parable of contrast, rich and poor, heaven and hell, right? uh, 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 feasting luxuriously, uh, a source of food for dogs. Right? This, this is, it's a very strong contrast. But this man has a name. So the first man doesn't have a name. His name is, is, is nameless. Uh, this guy has a name. His name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is the only character in all of Jesus' parables that is given a name. This is why you'll find some want to argue that this is more than a parable. Jesus has someone in particular in mind. I go back and forth on a lot of this. I, I lean towards the parable. It's set up as a parable. It's delivered as a parable. It concludes as a parable. It probably is a parable. But as we see, I do think there's a good reason why Jesus gives us his name. His name in Hebrew, Lazarus is the Greek of the Hebrew name Eleazar. Eleazar simply means God has helped and immediately we see there's a rich man who had his fashion and his food. He lived luxuriously. There's a poor man named God has helped. And then, then he describes how God has helped this man. It looks like God ain't helping this guy. I mean, just, just look at how he is described in this passage. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, here the prosperity preacher doesn't know what to do because a guy whose name God has helped doesn't look like God is helping him. The prosperity heretic wants you to believe that if God helps you, it is financial. It is health. And here we have a guy who's getting the opposite. The reader should immediately think of Job. Job was a righteous man who suffered greatly. And what did Job have? Sores all over his body from head to toe. I think, I think we're clearly supposed to see a, a connection there. And of course, the irony is, is, is obviously rich. God's help, we see in this text, is bigger than bread and Netflix. It's much bigger than that. Now, notice there it says that the Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. This suggests that perhaps Lazarus was lame. Of course, having the sores and everything else likely contributes to that, or at least makes uh, adds an insult to an injury. And therefore, it's likely a loved one, family, uh, a friend, or someone who's annoyed by him uh, would have picked him up and laid him at the rich man's gate. Think about it. The guy has one way in and out of his mansion, and he's going to sit right here and beg of a guy who has so much to be generous to someone who has so little. In fact, the word used to describe the poor man, there's two Greek words for poor. One is a poor person who has something. This is the, the widow's might. She may have only had a might, but at least she had something. This is a guy who has nothing, nothing but the clothes on his back and the sores on his head and feet. And so he is dropped off at the front of the rich man's gate and hoping that he would be helped here. Now, this was a common scene throughout the New Testament. You don't have Social Security, don't have unemployment, don't have disability, don't have any of that. And so the poor and the handicapped would often beg at the temple or synagogues on, on the busy street, places like that, for help. In fact, there's a good example of this. In fact, I can give you two good examples. One is in Mark chapter 10. It's blind Bartimaeus. 
Blind Bartimaeus is on a major highway to uh, Jericho, not the same Jericho in, in, that was destroyed, but a different Jericho. Uh, and, and what is he doing? He, he hears a guy named Jesus and, and he's crying out. Or someone has to blank, bring blind Bartimaeus there. So too, remember the lame man in, in Acts that uh, Peter and John heal. Right? He is there at the temple. He's laid there because he, he can't carry himself. And what does he do? He cries out, oh, I want to walk. It's the same thing that, that you have here. He's laid here at the gate. And what is his job? His job, every time he sees that Ferrari pull in and out, or Cadillac, I don't know what are cool cars these days. To me, it'd be a 1972 Chevy Nova, red with black racing strap, stripes, right? That, that's what it would be for me. It could be whatever it is you want, I guess. But his job there is to beg. And, and, and it's shocking how easily the rich man overlooks him. He who is, is eating luxuriously can't even give him crumbs. And we need to note here, what you have at this time is, is the crumbs that will fall off your table. Animals like dogs would, would eat. And yet this poor man is so overlooked by, by the rich man that he is unwilling to give the crumbs to the poor man. In fact, he becomes a crumb for the dogs. And these aren't like cute dogs, sissy dogs. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, uh, we, we should ban sissy dogs, period. But that, that's a separate sermon. I'll, I'll save the material for it later. But, but the, the, these, aren't, these, aren't, these aren't dogs you would bring inside and, and, and take selfies with and put them on your, your Instagram. These are not these sort of dogs. You need to think of these dogs as, as wild dogs, as like coyotes, right? Um, on our uh, next door app emails, whatever we get, there was apparently a coyote in the uh, Indian Hills, uh, Silver Lake sort of area where, where, where we live and stuff. And people were in a panic. Like they'd never seen a coyote before. Can I give you advice about coyotes? Leave them alone. Right? We, we, we grew up with coyotes. And let me tell you something else about, about coyotes is it sounds like there's 50 of them. There's probably only five at best. Right? Build you a fire in your backyard and they'll leave you alone. We live in a city. You can't have fires. Never mind. <laughs> Government. Anyways, so... So, so he, he can't even get crumbs. He is hungry. He is starving. He is sick. He's in desperate need of someone to, to care for him. In fact, you see there, the sores, this, this again connects it with Job. These sores are likely caused by malnutrition, lack of medical care. He's covered from head to toe in sores, lacking the, mo the, the most basic of human necessities. He is the opposite of his rich counterpart. What a contrast we have here. Rich and poor healthy and sick, hungry and full, first and last class. And that is their life here. Let's look at the next life. The next life is in verses 22 through 31. You'll notice there in verse 20, they, they eventually died. A poor man died, was carried by angels to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Again, we need to see the contrast here to appreciate this, this parable. They die. Now, don't overlook that detail. This is a biblical principle that we Americans like to ignore. You and I will die. Death is the great equalizer. This is Solomon's point in Ecclesiastes. Rich or poor, black or white, male or female, Democrat or Republican, first world or third, you and I will die. Human history is full of examples where we have tried to achieve immortality, and yet we seem to not to defeat our greatest enemy. What is it that Martin Luther once wrote? Every man must do two things alone. He must do his own believing. He must do his own dying. 
And you notice on the one hand that, that the Lazarus, the poor man, is carried by the angels. Now, this is where we get the idea that when we die, an angel comes and takes us into heaven or hell or whatever it, it might be. Now, let me just, just say regarding that. Um, outside of this, you're not going to see that imagery a whole lot uh, or really anywhere else in, in the Bible. I would say um, when it comes to this parable, try not to, to, to force your entire eschatology from a parable. Maybe this is how it happens, but, but, but I don't know. But, but this is a parable. Jesus has details for the purpose of heightening the, the contrast. Maybe this is how it goes. I'm not against that. Um, but you need to see here is that one man is carried to Abraham's presence, to heaven. He's carried by the angels, divine beings. The other man is carried down below. He is buried. And so the impression is that the poor man probably isn't even buried. There's no one that comes to his funeral. He's just, he's just left dead. No one cared about him in this life. Why would they care about him at, at death? But despite that, he is carried by the angels. Whereas the rich man, I bet his, his funeral was on CNN. I bet he had a page-long obituary in New York Times. I bet, people, uh, I bet he was trending on, on Twitter even. People posted their, their favorite Google image of this man, and they talked about how, how he influenced them and how, how, how they read every book he ever wrote. He was buried, fine, wealthy coffin, the best you could get, and in a memorable cemetery. But you'll notice that the one is carried by divine beings. The other is carried by temporal human beings. One goes above, the other goes into the ground. More than that, more than just simply being buried, we see that in verse 23 and verse 24, he is taken to Hades, and in Hades, being a torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. And immediately, we are launched into a major debate. What in the world is being described here? Well, if we had time, we would, we would go in a whole, whole big discussion on the issues here. But, but let me see if I can summarize what is happening here. What does the Bible mean by Hades? Now, Hades is the Greek word Hades. It's translator, transliterated into English. So, so that we can have this, this conversation. Your King James and other translations may say hell here. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's good. I think, I think that's right. But that word Hades is more generic than simply hell. Let me give you, for the sake of simplicity, two meanings of hell, or Hades rather, which is a New Testament word, but it has an Old Testament connection. The first is um, the grave, which apparently I didn't put it up, or the grave, right? Hell means uh, the grave. Or Hades means the grave. Hades is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Sheol. If you've read your Old Testament enough, you've read about Sheol. So when Jonah is in the water, we skip this part, right? He's in the water, he gets swallowed by a fish, and he writes a poem, which I ain't writing no poem if I'm swallowed by a fish. I'm not that spiritual. Maybe you are? Awesome. I'm looking for a knife or something. I don't know what I'm doing. Saying a prayer or something, right? I gotta get out of this fish, okay? He writes a poem. And at the end, he says, you brought me down to Sheol. You brought me down into the grave. You brought me down into the heart of the earth. So Sheol often means the grave in the Old Testament. And the Greek rendering of that is grave. We get that in the New Testament here in Acts chapter 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. This is Peter talking. He both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Notice the context here. He's talking about death and burial. 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. Hades. Now, in this context, what does he mean by Hades? Clearly the tomb. Because the connection is, David is buried. You can go visit him to this day. You can go where Jesus was buried. He ain't there. So here, Hades means the grave. But it doesn't always mean grave. It also means hell. The place of the wicked. For example, in Luke chapter 10, we read, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, notice the contrast here. One goes to heaven, the other goes to hell. What's the contrast here in Luke chapter 16? One is carried into heaven by divine beings. The other is brought down, buried, and then taken into Hades. It's the contrast. So clearly what we have here is more burial. This is post-mortem experience. The point is to show us that the unjust rich man is under the divine wrath of God while Lazarus is resting in God's presence. This is the afterlife. And notice how his experience is described here. First is that of separation. Notice the language there in, in verse 23 and 24. He looks up and where does he see Lazarus and, and Abraham? Where, where, where are they? The Noah County turns the way over yonder, right? Over yonder means you may need to take your truck to get there. You may need a four-wheeler to get there, but you ain't walking, right? Not in this weather you ain't, right? It's way over yonder, far off. That's the language of separation. He, he looks up like the prodigal son's father, right? He looks up and from afar off, there he is. He's way over there, so far over there, he can't get there on his own. He must be brought over. He must be picked up and taken. There is separation here. But not just separation, there is torment. I've got agony up there, torment. And notice the, the word used to, to describe there is the word flame. I am in anguish there at the end of verse 24. I am in anguish in this flame. Now the Bible frequently associates the domain of the wicked with fire. Now you can take this as literal or figurative. But it is clear that fire is often associated with the, 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 the agony of the un, unjust and the wicked in the afterlife. Let me give you just a few. I, I took out half of these, and then I skipped the other half. So, so uh, I'm, I am saving you time. Isaiah 33, verse 14. Notice this is Old Testament. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling, has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire, the everlasting burnings? In chapter 66, the book ends this way. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me for their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. This is later quoted by Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, But I say to everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I believe that word there is Gehenna. I could be wrong for hell. Chapter 
18, we looked at this passage a few weeks ago. It is better for you to enter a life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two, eye, two eyes to be thrown to hell of fire. Chapter 25, and he will say to those that is left, apart from me, you curse into ever, ever, everlasting or eternal fire. Prepare for the devil and his messengers, his, his angels. Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were consumed with fire just as they were consumed. They serve an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Again, that's a literal fire in Sodom and Gomorrah. You can take it to be metaphorical, but, 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 but it's clearly this fire corresponds to that fire. Or we can look at just one example of Revelation. We can look at four or five others. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I mean, what are you going to do with this? This is consistent here in the parable with what we see elsewhere in Scripture. At the same time, you have flames described part of the agony of hell. There is an emphasis on darkness. And we need to see that there is obvious tension here. Is it possible to have both fire and darkness? I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, but, but I'm a theologian and not, not a scientist. But it makes sense, doesn't it? There is a fear and a pain we associate with darkness. If you still don't believe me about that, go to Mammoth Cave into the heart of the earth and let them turn the lights out. I listened recently to a podcast. You remember the, the, little, uh, the little soccer team over in, I think it's Thailand, that got caught up in the, in, in the caves? Complete absolute darkness. They were given the choice whenever they were finally able to, to reach them and bring food and supplies and oxygen. They were losing oxygen in the cave. They said, boys, you've got two options. One, very well and likely will kill you. The other won't. The one option is we take you one by one by these professional divers. The other option is you stay here for about three or four months and then we come get you when everything's dried up. You know what they said? Oh, we'll take the risk. We'd rather die than to be in this darkness. We all would. And so the Bible describes darkness. Matthew chapter 8, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Uh, Matthew 22, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. We, we look, looked at that passage, I, I believe. Matthew 25, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing teeth. You can't get around this. can't get around it at all. But also notice what he experiences here in the afterlife. That is mercilessness. Mercilessness. Seeing Lazarus and Abraham far off, he begs for respite. He begs for mercy. He begs for grace, yet none is given to him. Now contrast that with the destiny of Lazarus. Here at the end of verse 23. He saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. Now, now, the original readers would have been appalled about this. Everything about this would have been appalling. They associated wealth with divine favor, poverty with divine Disfavor, right? We, 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 we do this occasionally, even, even today. But we see Lazarus in the presence of Abraham. This would have been a Jewish way to say he is in heaven. Where's Abraham? What did God say? I am right now uh, the God of Abraham. I am right now the God of Isaac. I am right now the God of Jacob. So where does he go? He goes where Abraham is. Where's Abraham? He's with God himself. This would have been a common way to describe the afterlife of, of righteousness and peace. This is the abode of righteousness. This is the place of peace, rest, and contentment. Lazarus clearly suffered in his life, but he suffered by faith, and now he has entered his reward. So you get the response from the rich man in verse 25 and 26. There he, he sees him afar off and says, Abraham, 
uh, where, where he says, uh, verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. There it is, there's the agony. Notice what Abraham says in verse 25. Child, remember that you, in your lifetime you received good things, Lazarus in, in, in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted, you're in anguish. Besides, all this between you and me is a great chasm. So while in torment, the deceased man is shouting, because he sees him far, far off. He's shouting at him. He requests relief. We, we all would do this, wouldn't we? In theory, we, we all certainly would do this. Notice he doesn't ask for permanent relief. He settles for just a small drop of water off Lazarus' tongue. Or finger, rather. But what we need to see is tables turn. Remember the contrast. The contrasts are, are critical here. He wants a drop of water from Lazarus' finger. If he was unwilling to give a drop of a crumb from his own table to Lazarus. You see the contrast? The tables have turned. All this is, is an important detail. It doesn't, so if you're reading this passage as, as, as being about rich and poor, you're missing the point. Rich and poor is a detail to heighten the contrast. It's not about how the rich people should act, how poor people should act. It's not any about that. It's about them being in reverse roles. Much as the rich man did not see Lazarus in life, now Lazarus doesn't see the rich man in death. It's contrast. Lazarus was licked by dogs, whereas now the rich man is consumed in the flame. Lazarus suffered and the rich man was satisfied. Now the rich man suffers and Lazarus suffered. We, we are meant to see the, the, the tables turning here. And as Abraham denies the rich man his request for two reasons. The first reason is because it would be improper there in verse 25. Relief cannot be granted until justice has been satisfied. And this is the issue with hell. Something I think people miss about it. Justice cannot be satisfied until sin has been cleansed. That's where we get our, really our doctrine of justification. Christ must die to cleanse us of sin. That is the answer to, to justice in the gospel. But when there is not a removal of sin, there cannot be the removal of justice and judgment. This is classic doctrine on judgment. And we, we get notice here. Has the character of the rich man changed? His circumstances have changed. He has not changed. Now, this is something you need to learn in life. You can change circumstances, but if the character doesn't change, their circumstances won't change in the end. You can give someone who doesn't know how to handle money $10 billion. You know what's going to happen in, in, in a month from now? They ain't going to have $10 billion. You've got to deal with the character issue. This is what's wrong with the lottery issue. You can win $100 million, $10 after taxes, but, but if, if, if you don't deal with the character issue that knows how to handle money, you won't be able to, able to handle a lot of money or a lot of authority or a lot of responsibility, right? We, we, we get this. But notice here, his character doesn't change. Notice what he does. He's shouting across the chasm. Father Abraham, see that poor man next to you? I remember him. He's a no one. Have him grab a bucket, put his finger into it, and bring me some relief. He ain't doing nothing else. Has he changed? No. He would have been just as quick to do it during life if he noticed he even existed. He hasn't changed one bit. This is the issue with hell. Hell isn't uh, 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 full of people ready to repent. It's full of people who are handed over to their base desires. Let me see if I can illustrate this for the Babylon Bee headline. Now, let me remind you, Babylon Bee is a satire site, so this will probably offend somebody. Here's the, here, here it is. Report. Women in hell still trying to turn up the thermostat. I love that. I love that. Right? I, I don't know if you ever noticed this. Men are always hot. They won't say anything. 
and the rise are always cold, right? Uh, I mean, it's gotten where a man and I were, well, uh, we're going to go to the movie theater, babe. You should probably dress up for it, right? You know, don't wear something nice, wear something warm, right? And of course, you read the article, it's all about how despite the flames of hell, they're still turning the thermostat up. And all the guys were thinking, well, I'm not going to say anything, but wear a sweater next time you come down here, right? The point is, is that even in hell, we do not change who we really are. So it's improper for this to happen. Justice hasn't been satisfied. The other is, is because it is impossible. I'm taking these terms from a commentary, so I'll give, give William Hitcherson right credit here. The word there for chasm is used only here in the New Testament. It describes a yawning gorge or a ravine. And, and if you want to know what that is, think of the, great, the Grand Canyon. Can you walk across the Great Grand Canyon? No, you can't. You can't. There's a chasm there. You can't get from one end to, to the other. And that's the issue here. The point is to demonstrate the finality of death and judgment. There is no second chance. And so what, what is the rich man going to do now? He thinks, well, okay, if I can't be relieved, I, I, I need to think about other people. Probably for the first time in his life, he's thought of someone other than himself. He thinks, you know, I've got some brothers back. I mean, they're, they're just, just like me. The last thing I want is for them to, to, to experience this. And so he, he says, well, hey, hey, Father Abraham, he shouts. Send Lazarus back up. Notice, he, he's still ordering Lazarus around. Send him back up. So they'll, they'll believe in, in, in the dead. They'll believe someone who's, who's come back from, from the dead. And Abraham, to the shock of even us today, say, says no. No, I'm not going to send him back. He's found his rest. He's found his peace. He's found contentment. And look, Lazarus don't want to go back. I heard a comedian once, I think it was Mark Larry, said, can, can you imagine if you're Lazarus? Finally sharing a cigar with Jesus, right? You, you went through the bad part, right? The, the dying part's the bad part. You finally got through that, and you hear this voice, Lazarus, come forth, right? He's like, what, what do you want, right? You had your chance, right? No, I'm done, right? I'm retired, right? This is better than, 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 than Florida and all the South, right? This is where I'm going to retire, better than the Bahamas. But nevertheless, he, he heeds the call, of course, and, and comes. Abraham gives two reasons why he won't send Lazarus back. The first reason is in verse 29. Scripture is sufficient. Notice the language. There. This is really striking what Jesus says. They have Moses and the prophets. That's the way of saying the entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets. Let them hear them. Jesus clearly has a high view of Scripture. This is where we get in a lot of trouble with a lot of the stuff we buy at the bookstore, isn't it? Chances are, many of us here believe the story of little boys and their experience in supposedly heaven than we do what the Bible says about heaven. Let's be honest. We all do this. We want to know. What is this boy experience? Did he see grandma? What songs did they sing? What was it like? It, there's scripture. Scripture is very clear. And Jesus' point is very obvious. Scripture sufficiently lays out what the just and holy life looks like. This man and your brothers have their opportunity. All they have to do is to hear, heed, and repent. There's no mystery there. Scripture is sufficient. And notice that, that the just and holy life isn't determined by wealth. It's determined by holiness and repentance. But notice the second thing Abraham wants us to see here. Christ is sufficient. No, no, don't miss this. This is the key to, to the entire parable there in verse 31. 
He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they ain't going to be convinced of a man who rises from the dead. And don't make the mistake you're wanting to make. This has nothing to do with Lazarus. Who is telling this story? It is one who was risen from the dead. And they still refuse to believe. We get this, right? We understand on one hand why stories about visiting heaven sell. But maybe now we see why, though they sell, they do not transform. Because little boys and fathers and sisters and strangers have an experience. Will not save your soul. Because they're not resurrections. They're claims of resuscitations. They will all die again. But there is one and only one who has tasted death and crushed its skull. They will not even believe one. As foretold by Moses and the prophets. Who is risen from the dead. And that's the point of the entire parable, isn't it? When you work your way all the way through this, that's the whole point of the parable. Christ is sufficient. To reject Christ is to reject the only hope we have in this life or in the next. For all of his wealth, his power, his influence, his access, all of that, he died with no hope. For all of his poverty, his suffering, his sickness, and his misery. Eleazar found a God who truly helped. I see, he could live without fear. And what's the difference? One believed in he who was risen from the dead. Isn't Christ enough? That's the point. Jesus is enough. May we hear the text.